Uh, scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Acts, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. If you'd like to follow along, you can find it printed on page 6 of your bulletin. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Let's all join together in a word of prayer. Let's all pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us this time. We give you praise in advance for how we know you're going to speak to us, minister to us, comfort us, prod us, provoke us, bless us, all these things that you promised to do. So please draw near to us as we draw near to you through your word. Give us clarity of minds and hearts. Give us physical strength. As well, endurance, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what your first exposure to this city, Washington, D.C., might have been, but I first got to know D.C. Uh, in 1997. I was here uh, spending a summer interning at the D.C. Public Defender's Service. Uh, feels like a lifetime ago. Uh, for some of you, 97 was a lifetime ago. You weren't alive yet. Um, and I was serving at that time as a uh, criminal investigator intern, uh, which sounds like something from CSI. Uh, but what that meant was that I was, uh, along with a team of other people, supporting the defense attorneys, uh, canvassing crime scenes, take, uh, talking to different witnesses, that were there when these incidents happened, taking statements if they were willing uh, to allow us to do so, and seeing, if possible, if any of those witnesses might be willing to testify in court. It was the first time, at least for myself, that I really got to understand the value and the importance and the function of witnesses in trials like these. Witnesses. Of course, the setting is a little bit different in the Bible from that of a criminal court, but witnesses 
is what Jesus' followers repeatedly called themselves in the first century. After all, they were eyewitnesses. They had seen firsthand Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And so they would testify, so to speak, testify to what they had seen and experienced in their lives with their words. They would testify to the truth, to the whole truth, and you know, and nothing but the truth about Jesus. Witnesses is what Jesus called his disciples to be. As we find those very words in verse 8 of today's passage, he says, a great commission he gives to the church, you will be my witnesses. And that language is actually in turn taken from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 43 and 44. It's a scene where God is challenging the surrounding nations and their gods and idols sort of to a trial. He says, call on your witnesses, and I'll call upon mine. And let's find out who is the true and living God. So God turns to his people and he says, you are my witnesses. Come along. Tell the truth. Tell them who I am. Tell them what I've done for you. Tell them about my character. Tell them about my mighty deeds. Testify as witnesses. Do you know that To be witnesses of Christ, to testify with your words, with your actions, to the love of God, to the beauty of grace, to the truth of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, to be witnesses of Christ is the calling of the church and the calling of every follower of Christ. Do you know that this morning? And do you also know that witnesses is one of the main themes of the opening paragraphs here of the book of Acts? Well, we're starting a new study of the book of Acts today. It's going to carry us over through for a couple of months, the book of Acts. I don't know how many of you have read it through. I'd like to encourage you to go ahead and pick up a Bible over the next week or maybe find it online, a copy that you can find digitally And read it. Read through it. It's a fascinating story. It's written by Luke, who was a physician in that time, and acts as a history of the earliest days of the Christian church. And it tells us about the amazing spread of the good news of Jesus' grace, his saving grace. The amazing spread of the Christian faith as Jesus' disciples go out as his witnesses, right? And we read about different stories of lives that were radically changed, set free from oppression. People meeting Jesus for the first time. His followers who persevered under persecution. We see the evidence of the power of community. Uh, the workings of the Holy Spirit through the details of people's lives, the development of the church, the start of new churches in cities just like ours, even in places that had never before heard of the name of Jesus. We're excited to be able to unpack this story together with you and to learn. And in fact, you may or may not know that the book of Acts is actually a sequel, kind of like Avengers, Endgame, perhaps, maybe, sort of. 
Well, verse 1 explains how this is the case. It says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up in heaven. So the former book that Luke is referring to is, of course, the Gospel of Luke, which tells about the life and the ministry of Jesus through his crucifixion and eventually his resurrection, where it ends and then Acts picks up from there. In fact, this book could have been named the Acts of Jesus Part 2. Since Luke tells us right in that sentence there that he will continue the story of Jesus' words and deeds. Because after all, the church, we're told, is the spiritual body of Christ. The, the very presence of Jesus here on earth. Where? Here. You. Us. The church of Christ, which began in these early days. The very presence of Christ and now the hands and the feet of Jesus and the heart of Jesus in a broken and a weary world. Acts is the continuing ministry of Jesus in his words and his deeds, through his people's words and his people's deeds. But what does this even mean to be a witness? Well, we have a couple of themes that are worth drawing out here in this passage, and I want to run through that quickly. And of course, as always, we'll have a little Q&A time, a chance for you to ask questions. So three themes I'd like to bring out as we take a look at this passage. First, preparation. Secondly, power. And thirdly, purpose. Preparation, power, and purpose. Let's take a look. Number one, preparation. Last week, of course, was Easter Sunday, and we had a potluck after our service. And during lunch, Elmer came over and he asked me a great question, maybe one that a lot of you also had, and it was this. So what did Jesus do after the resurrection? I mean, like, like actually, what did he do? What happened after that point? Well, this passage tells us, doesn't it? For 40 days... From when Jesus rose from the dead until he ascended back into the heaven, which we read about at the end of this passage, Jesus taught his disciples. And he taught them, and he taught them, and he explained everything to them. Everything about the scriptures, everything about who he really was and what he had just accomplished by dying for our sins, by promising to rescue this whole world from sin, death, and evil by rising again from the dead. And we're told that he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive, it says in verse 3. He kept persuading them again and again, and everyone who doubted persuading them that he really did rise from the dead. We're told he spoke about the kingdom of God, and that he promised that the Holy Spirit would come upon them in a totally new way. It says in verse 4, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days, which we're going to read about next week in Acts chapter 2, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. In other words, on day one after the resurrection, Jesus didn't say, All right, I'm alive. So, get out there. Go ahead. Welcome back, children. Right? He didn't say, I'm alive. There's work to do. 
He said, listen, Jesus said, I'm alive. Wait. I've just risen from the dead. Hold on. But, but you know, Jesus, we got to go tell the people out there what just happened. Uh, we need to actually live in line with this resurrection, giving life and hope to the world, don't, me, don't we? Jesus says, let me teach you a little bit more. See, before sending them on mission, Jesus curiously brought his disciples into a period of preparation. It was a tradition in my high school that all the senior boys uh, at the end of the school year would take a, a trip to hike the Grand Canyon. And the highlight of the trip, of course, was to hike down to the very bottom of the canyon and then back up to the South Rim just in a few hours, all in one trip, which, of course, meant you got to be ready, right? So leading up to the trip, we were required to go on a number of practice hikes up in the hills, and so they didn't want anyone running out of gas and being left behind at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, right? So I bought myself a bunch of, uh, a pair of hiking boots, steel-toed, went on all these practice runs, felt pretty prepared going on. And then even then, even then, on the day of the real hike, the real thing, it was harder than expected. It's about a mile down, a mile up, a lot of hiking. Halfway up the canyon, my thighs began to cramp. Uh, my ego began to cramp. Uh, my calves began to cramp. We had to take plenty of breaks. But eventually, slowly, surely, we made it out in good time we made it, but I can't imagine what it would have been like, as hard as it was, to not have had that kind of practice, to not have put in the hours and the weeks of training to make it down and out of the canyon. There are among us, among you, some maybe Grand Canyon-sized challenges in life, and some of us are trying to hike it you might say, without any kind of spiritual preparation. I mean, I want to ask, um, what kind of season of preparation uh, might God have you in right now? We are wired and trained to think only in terms of action. might go as far as to say our city cultivates that even more. If you're worth your salt, then you got to go out there and do something. But what about preparation? It might be spiritual or moral preparation. It might be vocational preparation. And and maybe you're even resisting it. Uh, Maybe you're uh, sort of chomping at the bit with a bit of impatience. Maybe even overconfident about your readiness. You're saying, God, I need to be out there doing this thing. Maybe that thing that even you feel called to do. Why aren't you letting me get at it? And you're frustrated. Maybe you're even feeling behind. I mean, how much of life do we feel constantly behind in? But see, Jesus is like, wait. There are things that I need to teach you. There are things I need to give to you. In this case, namely, the Holy Spirit. 
There are things that I need to do in you. We might not realize it, might not know it. It certainly was the case for the disciples. For all our overconfidence and impatience, if Jesus were to put us out there right now as we're demanding, we'd surely fall on our face. Where in your life might you be resisting or even rejecting God's preparatory grace? Like I said a second ago, this is hard for us, especially in our culture. There's so much pressure to produce, and because of it, I think we tend to be a a whole generation that lacks spiritual depth because we don't settle down and take in. We feel the need constantly to put out. I mean, think about it. Jesus himself even was launching his worldwide mission of world transformation, unleashing upon the world his redeeming grace through his people. And so what does he do? He gathers his team of 12 and he walks with them for three years. And then after his resurrection, he walks with them for 40 more days. And by today's measurements, we would look upon that and say, what a waste of time. What was Jesus doing, in fact, even in his own life? For 30 years, before he came out into the public to start his ministry, what was Jesus doing growing up, maturing, seasoning, working as a carpenter, paying his taxes, learning ordinary faithfulness before God every day, day in and day out. As one author writes, he was building a solid foundation that not even betrayal and death eventually could shatter. And then he only ended up teaching publicly for three years. And some people might say, well, gosh, he could have squeezed in more teaching. He could have ministered to more crowds. He could have healed more people with compassion. But there's something by design here in the way that God works. As that author mentions, look, three years after 30 years of preparation, that's a a 10 to 1 ratio of preparation over accomplishment. And you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone today who lives out that ratio, and then you wonder why we're so shallow. You wonder why we're so anxious and sometimes so tired. What would it look like for you today to pay attention to whatever season of preparation God might have you in? Even if you don't know where he's taking you in the direction of, that's okay too. What would it look like for you to embrace today God's preparation, his preparatory grace? Secondly, we find power here in this passage, power. After Jesus' resurrection, one thing that lingered in the minds of the disciples, it seems almost all the time, was power. We actually see this in verse 6. We're told, then they gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And you might not know exactly what they're getting at. I'll tell you in a second. But Jesus heard the heart of their question. And that's why he responds in the way that he does in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
They were thinking about power. They were asking about power. The disciples, you know, were correct that Jesus was a king. And he was a king that was bringing his kingdom. And it is true, Jesus is a king. In fact, this ascension scene at the end of this passage reminds us of that. As Jesus is lifted up into heaven, he's described in terms that would have been familiar to his Jewish readers and listeners Because the clouds in the sky that are described there will actually be echoes of Daniel chapter 7 and other places in in the Old Testament that describe one like a son of man, a king like figure that will reign over the world, ascending through the clouds onto the very throne of God. When Jesus ascended, he was ascending as king and he was being seated upon his throne. In heaven, Jesus is a king, but the disciples so often and even here misunderstood what kind of king Jesus was and what kind of kingdom he was ushering in. Yes, even after three years plus 40 days of direct teaching with Jesus, that ought to encourage us, by the way, right? That you can spend that much time with Jesus and not get it. And so when we stumble along, we're doing okay. Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel, they ask. You see, they were hoping that Jesus would take them back to the days of King David, reestablish a monarchy, a theocracy, build an army, perhaps. They were dreaming of liberation from Roman oppression after centuries of occupation In subjugation, who could blame them? They were seeking national independence for the Jewish people. They were expecting a political kingdom, and they wanted it now. But Jesus had something else in mind. His kingdom would be a multinational kingdom, inviting into it people from every tribe and culture and people and language and ethnicity. That's why he says in verse 8 that he'd be sending his disciples out, not just to the people of Israel and Jerusalem, but to the ends of the earth. And his kingdom was going to be a spiritual kingdom. As John Stott put it, Christ's kingdom is spread by witnesses, not soldiers. Through a gospel of peace, not a declaration of war. And by the the work of the Spirit, not by force of arms, political intrigue, or revolutionary violence. I mean, yes, it's true that Christ's kingdom will always have radical political and social implications. But it would never be political in its essence. It would never be identified with any political ideology or program. And because Christ's kingdom would be a spiritual kingdom, what Jesus promises his followers is not political power, is not military power, not social power, but spiritual power. So he says, but you will very, very soon receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. What does that mean for you and me today? I've been thinking recently about how how easy it is to believe that the answer to all of our problems 
that the answer to all of our struggles and trials, whatever is most on your heart today, how easy it is to believe that the answer to those problems is some form of earthly power. I mean, think about that challenge. Bring it to your mind, whatever it might be. Especially some area of your life where you feel powerless, weak. Isn't it easy to begin to feel that, gosh, what I most need in life right now is job power. You know, if I could just have that position. Or what I most need is economic power. If I just had more money. Or what I most need to solve that thing is more knowledge power. I just need more education or just needed to read that one book out there. Or more relational power. If I only knew that person or if this person would stop bugging me. Or skills power. If I, if I was just better at this or that, then my life would be whole. But could it be that even for those things, could it be that what we most need is spiritual power. Don't get me wrong, of course God uses our gifts. Of course God gives us relief and solutions through our financial resources, through our vocational power. But what might change in the way that you're going about things, in the way that you're struggling, if we began to believe that what we most need is what Jesus actually promises me, which is his Holy Spirit. Here's one thing that might change. I think I'd relinquish, let go of, always trying to make life work through raw human force. You know, which is really what raising my voice with my kids is really about, right? Turning up the volume, right? And saying, you must, you have to, this is the only thing that can work, raw human force. Or maybe I might be able to let go of ways in which we feel tempted to manipulate people, uh, forcing people to do what we feel like they need to do to make things right, or to game the system. Maybe I'd be more patient with God's timing, him working things out in a meandering sort of way as far as human eyes can see. I mean, I might not, you might not be dreaming of literal armies like the disciples were, but I'm pretty sure that if I had that option, I just might take it to get to where I want to go and to get people to do what I want them to do. And so as we talk about the dream of political power and human force, it's worth pausing and talking for just a moment about politics, right? Living in the nation's capital. I think it's something that we need to remind ourselves of often. What would it look like for us to believe that at base what we most need is spiritual power rather than simply political power and how we need to be on guard against placing our trust, our ultimate trust in political power? I mean, let's be clear, it's true, God-ordained government, Romans 13. So politics is very important, and we're going to be hearing a lot about it. Already we are, but leading up especially through to the 2020 election. And one of the reasons why politics is important is because very often the most vulnerable in society are the ones who are most impacted by 
public policy. And that's in some ways by design, even in the Bible in Psalm 72, a song and prayer for the king of Israel. We're told again and again how the king's priorities ought to be about protecting the most vulnerable in society, the poor, the foreigner, the widow, the childless. Politics is important, but there are at least two ways in which I think this passage and this reminder of the value of spiritual power and the primacy of spiritual power might help order rightly how we relate to politics. Two things briefly. First, I think it's important to pay attention to the way in which we so often sacrifice the local for the national. The way in which our minds, our imaginations, and our Conversations become consumed with these broader themes and policies, which of course are important. But can you just imagine if we were to redirect how much energy and time we spend around national issues and instead poured them into the most local of issues? Showing up at your local ANCs, advisory neighborhood commissions, talking about the issues that are most pertinent to the vulnerable here in Washington, D.C., of engaging the very people that are to your left and to your right, in other words, of learning how to be a good neighbor, even politically. But secondly, I think we also need to recognize and acknowledge the ways in which we tend to overemphasize, for all its appropriate emphasis, but to overemphasize the critical nature of government and politics. In other words, how much we tend to neglect the very real influence of other kinds of social institutions, whether neighborhood associations or private enterprises, especially those that are being directed by kingdom values, by local businesses, by community groups, and of course, by churches or even of other houses of worship, how much we can tend to believe and how I think it's accurate to say how much the normal cultural orientation towards politics is today, which is to believe that all of our answers can be met, can be found, and all of our problems can be met through the institution of government. And it's just not so. There are certain things that can and must be addressed through those avenues, but it's not the only thing, the only way in which God has ordained for social change and for the kingdom of God to be advanced. Yes, how you vote matters in a very real way. But as Psalm 146 reminds us, do not put your trust, your ultimate trust, your ultimate hope in princes. In human beings who cannot save, blessed are those whose help, whose ultimate hope is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, their God. Fred Bruce, in reading this passage, put it this way, instead of the political power which had once been the object of all their ambitions, a power far greater and nobler would be theirs. And of course, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Friends, whether if it's political challenges in front of you, whether if it's social or relational or economic or emotional or whatever it might be in front of you, do you know that you have a power made available to you far greater and far nobler than even these? You have 
the Holy Spirit. What might change? What might change if you really believed that what you most need is spiritual power? Thirdly and lastly, this passage points us not only to preparation, not only to power, but lastly to purpose. And of course, as we started, we're reminded here that Jesus gives this grand commission that we find in verse 8 to be witnesses. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, Jesus tells them, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We're called to be witnesses. If your lives have been transformed by the grace of God, if the love of Jesus is the defining center of your soul, if you're a person of good news and of indestructible hope because of the resurrection of Jesus, what would it be like for you, for me, to wake up each morning saying, how can I be a witness to Christ? through your daily words and your actions, to serve up a public testimony about the reality of Jesus, about the wonder of his love, about the beauty of his grace. Do you know, do we know that we are called to give daily courtroom evidence of the reality of God's good news? I think even before we talk about some extravagant, complex ways in which you feel pressured perhaps to share your faith with others, whatever that has meant, whatever that might mean to you, that phrasing, I think for some of us, it might simply start here, simply to stop hiding your faith in Christ. I admit this is a challenge for me too. That is so many ways, I, I often joke about it, but, you know, talking with strangers, one of the quickest ways uh, for conversations to get awkward, with me at least, is for people to turn to me as I'm getting to know someone, a neighbor or someone at my kid's school, and they say, well, what do you do for a living? I say, oh, I'm a pastor. And they say, oh. <laughs> right? Or perhaps, uh, or sometimes it's, I, I really respect that. Or, um, or whatever it might be, right? And so I, I get embarrassed. I shrink back. I want to avoid that conversation sometimes too. I'm hesitant as well. And I wrestle with this other side of me that says, you should announce it to the world, right? Provoke that conversation. Tell them about Jesus right there, right? And some of you who have been on the other receiving end of that you're saying, that's exactly why I don't want to come to a church, right? It's too much. What does it mean to be a witness? What does it mean? We're going to be talking about this throughout our study of the book of Acts, but I just want to give you a few very quick things as we close up our time here. Number one, it means bringing the reality of Jesus to bear in both our words and in our deeds. Remember, in the very beginning of this passage, we're told, Luke tells us, that he's writing about all that Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. 
So for the disciples back then, and even for us now, followers of Christ, being a witness means conveying to the world the truth and the reality, the grace of Jesus, not only in the things that we say, but also in the things that we do. And what that means is we're also called to be witnesses even in our workplaces. Do you know your work is one of the best ways for you to declare by the good work of your hands but the hope of Jesus, to do a good job at what you're doing, to show that people matter or that education matters or that God cares about our finances or that God cares about protecting the vulnerable or that God cares about an orderly home, that God cares about, name it, whatever is at the heart of what you do as a teacher or an administrator at a stay-at-home parent or as a lawyer or a doctor or a nonprofit worker, as a clerk or someone that puts things on shelves in the most wonderful way that you know how. Each of you are giving glimpses to the world of a God who cares, of a God who's present, of a resurrection that has spawned in this world new life, a new energy. God is remaking this world putting away darkness, pushing away destruction and death? How are you in your work showing the truth, testifying to the truth about life in God? How do you give people hope, especially to the hopeless? How are you showing the reality of reconciled relationships in Christ? How are you modeling in your daily deeds? the very intimate presence of God? What would it look like to live out in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, a witness that works itself out in both word and deed? It's also individual and communal. Normally when we hear the word witness, if you've been familiar with this language in the Christian church, we think about individual witness. I need to share my faith. But do you know that in this passage, Where Jesus talks about witness everywhere there in the original language, it's actually verbs and words that are plural. You is plural. You are plural. You are my witnesses, plural. There's a corporate dimension to this too, communal. We are together a witness to Christ. The words that we share, the things that we do, as the watching world reads what Jesus is all about by the lives that we live in community. Do you know that? You've heard it before. They will know that we are Christians by our love. As Jesus says, they will, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another as I have loved you. And so ask yourself that the gathering of this place, the love that we share, the love that you experience in your neighborhood groups, in your mom's group, in in your one-on-one times with other people, do people see an attractive love, glimpses of the love of Christ in a way that makes people hungry to experience the same? Word and deed, individual and communal, lastly, here and there. You'll notice Jesus gives sort of a, a geographic roadmap to where he wants his disciples to go as his witnesses. He says, in Jerusalem, where they were then, in Judea and Sumeria, which was the broader Jewish region right there, and to the ends of the earth. 
to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people, to every nation and culture and ethnicity beyond their borders. And in fact, that is actually also kind of a roadmap to the way that the book of Acts is arranged. We'll see that. The story starts in Jerusalem, and then the disciples push out into Judea and Samaria around chapter 8. And then starting in chapter 12 and 13, they push out even beyond to the ends of the earth. We'll talk about what that looks like, especially as the book of Acts challenges us to cross over into different ethnic and cultural groups that are different than our own Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But first, at least as far as this passage is concerned, I want to draw your attention to one thing, where it starts. You see, again, Jesus didn't say, you are my witnesses, go to the ends of the earth. He says, no, wait, stop, and stay. In Jerusalem, right where you are, their present location, be witnesses there. Friends, where should you be witnesses to Christ, to his grace? First and foremost, start where you are. Start small. In other words, be a neighbor. Who are the people immediately around you that you can build a relationship with? Again, in an authentic way, not with goods to sell, uh, you know, not, not, not with a religion to proselytize with, but with a love to share, with a story of your own to share. What would it look like for you to begin to be a neighbor? This, in fact, reflects a little bit of what we're trying to do in our church and shifting a lot of our neighborhood ministry's energy, a, a tilt away from just investing in neighborhood ministry programs and events and activities, but rather calling the church to invest in relationships with your neighbor, with the people on your block, listening to their stories, getting to know who they are, finding ways, creative ways in which you can actually build up neighborliness in your midst. This is why it would be so valuable for you to, to attend the Neighboring Well seminar, to go, to, to learn how to do this, to be equipped, to overcome barriers, because yeah, we all have our hesitations, but what could it look like for you in your setting, on your blocks, to be part of a church that's seeking not just to do ministry, but to be a ministry in the way in which you connect with those immediately around you. Friends, this is an important call for us to consider, especially in the unique season that we're in as a church. As you know, we've been working through what we've been calling the Renew Initiative, and what you have been hearing and will hear some more is that we feel freshly committed, called, to investing deeply into the relationships within our church, uh, to rebuild this family, to seek intimacy, to draw into the fold people that have been feeling like strangers, to extend ourselves with rich hospitality by the grace of God. But one thing that we need to keep in mind is that we would not be doing that as a true church if that made us become an ingrown church only facing one another, closing our doors, drawing down the blinds. Don't let anyone disrupt the good thing we have going in here. No, only churches that have, yes, true inward growth and intimacy, but also an outward face 
will truly have the vibrancy that we find in the book of Acts. As a missionary and theologian, Leslie Newbegin once said, the church is the pilgrim people of God. It is on the move. Or as an Old Testament scholar, Christopher Wright once wrote, Jesus did not give a mission to his church. He formed a church for his mission. Without the mission, a church is not a church. It's just a group of disobedient Christians hanging out. So what does it look like then for us to be a church on the move, a church on mission? To, yes, be a family with depth and intimacy and hospitality, but in such a way that we so eagerly want to draw more people in and turn that energy out to be a church on the move, a church that Jesus died and rose again for, a church that honors the grace of preparation, a church that seeks spiritual power from the Holy Spirit, a church that knows that our purpose is not just to hang out, but to be a mission center, even for the good of our neighbors here, the good of our neighbors in our city. Don't you want to be that kind of a church? By God's grace, we can be. By God's grace, we have been. But let's keep growing, especially as we study this book. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your kindness to us. We pray our blessing upon this study especially as we start here today. We pray that you would give each of us grace, both individually as well as communally, to be your witnesses, testifying to the power of your love and your grace in our words, in our deeds. Jesus, send your Holy Spirit upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing.
I want to um, pause before Pastor Yancey leads us in a time of communion.